Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Cameron. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me this week. I uh, certainly appreciate everyone who takes time out of their busy schedules to listen to these episodes. If you were with me last week, we talked about the Mexican government, kind of gave a brief history of the government of Mexico. We talked about the pre-party and its rise, its dominance, and then the end of that dominance, at least for now. We talked about some of the presidents in Mexico, three in particular, and we talked about some of the other parties in Mexico. We had said we were going to look at some of the data on public corruption and the perception of public corruption in Mexico, but we didn't really have enough time last week, so we're going to do that this week. And then last week when we were talking about the key figures in the pre-party and some of the presidents of, of Mexico, we didn't get a chance to talk in any real way about Manuel Bartlett Diaz, in part because he never became the president of Mexico, but because he's such a central figure in the Camarena case, we're going to touch on his career, his current standing just a little bit, and that's going to serve as a preview for some other things to come. But before we get into that, I want to talk for a minute about a different subject. There is so much information on the internet. And one of the really hard things is to figure out how much of it is complete garbage, right? So, for example, this week there was a fairly well-known, fairly prominent journalist who retweeted to all of her followers an article about uh, about Mark Wahlberg. Turns out the article was completely false. And she got a lot of blowback, for obvious reasons, for having retweeted it. And yet, if you looked at it objectively, it would be almost impossible for anyone to know. Now, you can say she was a journalist and she looked more, but you understand the problem. And with respect to cartels, Mexico, the Camarena case, there is a lot of bad information out there. A lot of bad information. And in the next few weeks, we're going to deal with some of that. But here's something I want to talk about and expressly point out and ask you all to be very aware of and careful about. There have been stories that have come out in the last few weeks that say, hey, so-and-so has said something, and that corroborates other things people have said. And I'm particularly talking about allegations with respect to the CIA's involvement in the Camarena kidnapping and murder. We've talked a lot about the reasons why I find that very hard to believe. People who know that that's my position then come back and say, aha, here's corroboration. I want to say one thing about corroboration. We will talk about some of the specifics later on. But here's something about corroboration. 
if I say something to three people, I tell a story to three different people, and one of them goes on a podcast and says, I was told X. And then the other two people say, oh, I was told that too. All of a sudden, people stand up and say, ah, they corroborate corroborate each other. No, they don't. No, they don't, because they're all relying on the same source material. So if somebody's going around telling multiple people and then multiple people report it, that is not corroboration. It can't be. And so, for example, if Lawrence Victor Harrison, or whatever his real name was, if he told 10 people the same story, those 10 people cannot corroborate themselves. There has to be something independent that corroborates the underlying statement. And that's what so many of these people on the net, on social media, who proclaim that they are now the purveyors of the truth because they've got corroboration, because they have a belief. That's what they miss. And that's something we've tried very, very hard in these podcast episodes to avoid. It's the underlying factual allegations that require corroboration. All right. Hopefully everybody gets my point. I could belabor it for way too long, but I'll bore you to death, so I'm not going to. All right. Let's talk about Mexican corruption. And, you know, we've talked in the past that there is a a general perception within Mexico, I think within the Mexican people, that corruption is in part just a way of life. It's how things work. Well, what I didn't know until I started looking into this, is that there are all kinds of statistics and figures and polls and analyses where corruption levels are measured and they're counted and they're reported. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes kind of walking through some of the statistics that I found for Mexico, Mexican corruption over the last three, four, five years. And as most of you know, and we've talked about it before, everything lags behind a little bit, right? So if you're doing a study in 2022, you're almost always looking at 2021 data because it takes that long to get it. And it may take a year or two to get all the data from 2021, analyze it, and then be able to write about it. So it's not a swift process. And so some of the figures we're going to talk about are a year or two or three old. But we will talk a little bit more about how things are changing, good, bad, and different, in just a minute. So there's something called Transparency International. And they have a corruption perceptions index and in 2021 or using 2021 data 
Transparency International found that Mexico ranked 124 out of 180 countries in terms of perceived levels of public sector corruption. 124 out of 180. There's also something called the Global Corruption Barometer. And again, also using 2021 data, they said that 60% of Mexicans believe that corruption had worsened in the last 12 months, and 43% report having a bribe, having paid a bribe to access public services. Actually, to access public services in the last 12 months. So 60% believe corruption is worse. 43% have had to bribe somebody for public services in the last 12 months. Another report analyzing 2020 data said 93% of companies surveyed reported encountering some form or type of corrupt practices in their industry. 93%. Back to the global corruption barometer. 40% of Mexicans who were surveyed said they considered the Mexican government's efforts against corruption as, quote, very bad. And 44% of them said that the judiciary in Mexico was very or extremely corrupt. 44% very or extremely corrupt. Another survey found that 66.9% of Mexicans considered public officials, quote, very corrupt. And 25% believed that the police were the most corrupted institution. 36% had a general perception of trust towards the government. A couple of other statistics for you. Um, One in three corrupt, one in three companies in Mexico said that they'd been a victim of corruption. And this is from the Mexican National Institute of Statistics and Geography. That same study. Okay. That found that one in three corruption, one in three companies had been a victim of corruption. That same study showed that eighty-seven point six percent of respondents reported that they did not report corruption cases to the authorities because they thought it would be ineffective based on the corruption level in the government. Uh, Another report found that Mexican companies lose 5% of their annual earnings due to corruption. Mexico ranked 96 out of 137 countries on the indicator of irregular payments and bribes, according to the 2020 Global Competitiveness, Competitiveness Report. Uh, something called the Instituto Mexicano para la Competividad um, said that corruption costs Mexico 
somewhere between 2 and 10% of the GDP every year. In uh, 2018, 63% of surveyed Mexican companies said they considered bribery and corruption to be part of everyday business. Okay, let's see. Recently, there was a conference in Mexico, and it was a joint meeting of the World Justice Project and Mexico's National Bar Association of Corporate Lawyers. And it is said that at this conference, they hosted more than 100 policymakers, civil society leaders, journalists, business people, and researchers. Now, what they were discussing were the new 2022-2023 Mexico State's Rule of Law Index. Mexico State's Rule of Law Index, and we'll talk about it in just a second, exactly what that means. But on the positive note, the data showed that six Mexican states have made progress on the rule of law over the last five years. Querétaro topped the ranking um, for the second year in a row. The governor of that state said, in um, in order for Querétaro to attract more investment, it needs to bet on the rule of law. Even before education, we first need rule of law because everything else comes out of that. The state of Sonora moved up from 29th place to 20th. Now, that's again amongst the, the Mexican states. So still 20th isn't great, but it's it's moving in the right direction, at least according to these statistics. Guillermo, Guillermo Noriega, the secretary of the general comptroller of Sonora, said that his state understands that the rule of law is key to creating economic opportunity and he shared examples of open government and anti-corruption initiatives in the state of Sonora, such as automatically investigating video from police body-worn cameras when people file corruption complaints. We're committed to continuing to improve, he said, not only on the Mexico State's rule of law index, but on what the index is really about which is the quality of life for the people of Sonora. Four other states that um, moved up dramatically uh, in these last rankings were Baja California Sur, which made a huge jump, Guanajuato, which actually moved up to second, Tamaulipas, and Sinaloa. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about data, you know, that's a little bit old. So question how some of the, uh, you know, the violence, the intercartel violence that's going on in Tamaulipas and other states might affect this. But what we have is six states that showed 
definite improvement on this index. However, (laughs) there's always a good and a bad. Even Mexico's top performing states with respect to this index had a score of 0.49 out of 1, which is below the halfway point on the rule of law scale, which goes from 0 to 1. So even the best states and even the ones that have moved the most are still below kind of that mid-level point of a standard for the rule of law. On average, rule of law performance, the report said, is largely stagnant in Mexico. There are a few other trends affecting Mexican states. Order and security scores have improved in two-thirds of Mexican states, largely due to improvements in people's perceptions of safety. However, homicide and crime rates remain at worrying levels And order and security scores remain weak across the country. Again, how much has those have those feelings, those perceptions, the perceptions of safety amongst the common people, you know, the the citizens, non-cartel affiliated citizens, how much of their perceptions of safety changed since this data was uh, presented? One of the things I found interesting is that the effectiveness of the civil, not criminal, civil justice system seemed to have improved, excuse me, in at least two-thirds of the Mexican states with post-COVID timeliness of proceedings improving in 24 states and alternative dispute resolution mechanisms were perceived to be the most effective aspect of civil justice in Mexico. By contrast, though, criminal justice faces continued and persistent challenges across virtually every Mexican state. Scores for the effectiveness of criminal investigations had an average score of 0.21 out of 1, 0.21, and rates of unreported crime are extremely high and increasing in almost every state. The the fight against corruption, the report says, is mostly stagnant throughout most of the country, and only a handful of states made any progress on anti-corruption And the report says that even the ones that did make progress or even where there was progress, the, quote, progress was minor. What's interesting, though, is this index is actually being used and it's it's being used by policymakers. Twenty eight states have adopted the index into policymaking at some level. Um, Five National Anti-Corruption Accountability and Human Rights Plans and Programs have also adopted the index. The um, president of the National Bar Association of Corporate Lawyers for Mexico says the index is a great tool that provides the measurable, up-to-date information needed to take a viable, informed decision-making process. So that's the data. 
what does the data show? Why did we walk through all of that? And I know it wasn't very long, but what's the point? The point is that reality matches up with perception, right? And in a lot of respects, the indexes and the figures being, you know, the the polling and other considerations, in addition to just this index, measure people's feelings but the idea that most people think that there is a high level of corruption a low level of safety that corruption is a part of everyday life these statistics show that and we looked at you know five or six or seven different metrics all of which point in the same direction and what's interesting i think is that you get an acknowledgement from state governments in particular, but also at the national level, that corruption is a problem. You know, 28 states saying, all right, we are going to incorporate this data into our policy making, and yet, at least in the short term, it's made little or no difference. What did we say? Progress where there was progress is minor. All of it's good, right? Minor's better than none. But still, you have the issue there. And so I think one of the interesting concepts, and we've talked about it in some respects, is if you have an ingrained system where corruption is prevalent, You have a system where cartels have now had a certain connection, you know, or a foothold in certain areas for, what, 40 years or more in some respects or some examples. What is the government to do, right? You know, you have an election. You know, we're looking at the American election coming up next November, and everybody in some respects says the same thing. Hey, we want to get unemployment down, (laughs) productivity up, wages up, inflation down, and have an impenetrable defense. Okay, great. Everybody says that. But how do you actually go about doing it? And one of the interesting things, I think, when you look at Mexico is – it might be easy to look at AMLO's administration or other administrations or state and local governments and say, ah, they're not really trying. They're in the pockets of the cartels. (laughs) And maybe in some respects that's the case, or in some instances it's the case. Maybe the simple fact of the matter is it's really freaking hard. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that understanding how and figuring out how to implement policies that change decades and decades and decades of corruption and, you know, this insidious nature of fear and corruption, and and then you add the cartels on top of it. 
I think people outside Mexico, as well as people in Mexico, but particularly outside, don't acknowledge how incredibly difficult it may well be. There was a, um, if you look at my newsletter, which will be coming out tomorrow, there is an interesting article from Proceso that's reported on by Borderland Beat. And the the initial point of the article is the idea that Mexican cartels have established networks in the United States that largely are not Mexican nationals, but are locals. And uh, there's a, a paragraph that I quote in there that says, you know, a lot of the distribution and natural sales are done by gringo networks. And then the reporter, Jesus Esquivel, says, part of the issue is that we blame the cartels, especially in the United States. We blame the cartels with and, and blame Mexico without looking at the internal things. And I give that example only because it reflects how difficult the issue is. And I've had lots of discussions over the last few weeks with people, especially on social media, who are like, oh, we could solve the problem overnight. Or here's an easy solution. Bullshit. It's not easy. It's like President Trump saying that he could solve the Ukraine war in a day. B.S. You can't solve the cartel situation overnight, even if you wanted to send in, you know, the U.S. Marines. It's not going to happen. These are difficult issues. And the point of all of this was twofold. One was to say, yes, the perception matches up to what's really going on. And number two, to understand that change is hard. Institutionalized problems in particular are so hard to change. Okay, enough about that. Manuel Bartlett Diaz. Let's talk about who he was, or who he is, I'm sorry, in general terms. And we'll go through that pretty quickly. Um, and then I want to talk about some crazy stuff <laughs> that you can read on the internet. Okay. So Manuel Bartlett Diaz, born February 23, 1936, currently is the director of Mexico's public energy company, CFE. And he's a former secretary of the interior He was um, elected to the Senate of the Republic from 2000 to 2006, where he was a staunch defender of state ownership of of electric utilities. He um, left the PRI in 2006 and announced that he was going to vote for AMLO. Since the 2000 election, when AMLO was elected, he has um, aligned himself with AMLO and and that you know coalition for the good of all. We talked about that last week. 
in 2012, he was elected as a senator for the left-wing Labor Party in coalition with Lopez Obrador's government. Um, he, again, Barlett Diaz is now the CEO of the Commission Federal de Electricidad, uh, sorry, Electricidad, CFE, state-owned electric utility, second most powerful um, state-owned company after Pemex. So what, um, what do we want to talk about with respect to Bartos Diaz is going back to the Camarena days. Remember, he was the Secretary of Interior under President Miguel de la Madrid, right? He had control of the DFS. He had lots and lots of authority and lots and lots of power. And he was one who was implicated in the Camarena case. We've talked about this over and over and over. Uh, so I'll run through it quickly. But early on, in when we get to the Zuno trial, so we're talking about 1990, there were concrete reports. Forget who they came from or, or the nature of who they came from. But reports from Harrison, from Hector Cervantes Santos, saying there were these conspiracy meetings where people got together to talk about finding the DE agent who was causing the problems. And Barlett Diaz was placed at some of these meetings, including at the Las Americas Hotel. And I've told you before, the people in Guadalajara that I talked to laugh if you tell them that Manuel Bartlett Diaz was alleged to have been at a meeting at Las Americas Hotel saying, you know, this that was a, in the red light district of Guadalajara and they never, ever, ever would have seen Manuel Bartlett Diaz there. But be that as it may, those were the reports. Those reports got greater and greater in 1992 when Jorge Godoy, and Rene Lopez Romero started making their new allegations, and they also placed Manuel Bartlett Diaz at conspiracy meetings and at Lope de Vega during the interrogation of Agent Camarena. Now, in the past, I've gone through methodically, and I can do it again, all of the evidence to suggest that he wasn't there during those times. We have newspaper articles placing him in different places in Mexico at the time. We have journalists who place him in different places. We have other people in the government. We have governors of states of Mexico saying, I met with him during the time he was supposed to be at a meeting, a conspiracy meeting in Guadalajara. We have all of that. Nevertheless, the connection between Manuel Bartlett Diaz, the Camarena case, the DFS, all of that served to make sure that Manuel Bartlett Diaz never became president of Mexico. Prior to the Camarena abduction in February of 85, it was almost a certainty 
that over the next six or 12 years, remember, Mexican presidents run for one term of six years, but over the next term or two, Manuel Bartlett Diaz would have been president of Mexico. Now, here's a couple of things I want to point out about that. If you look on Wikipedia, <clears throat> there is a paragraph in Wikipedia that basically says, Charles Bowden's report, Blood on the Corn, came out, and that ruined Bartlett Diaz's chances of being president. That is beyond asinine. Beyond asinine. Because Charles Bowden's Blood on the Corn didn't come out until 2015. The issues tying, and maybe I shouldn't say issues, the rumors the innuendo, the assumptions, the concerns tying Manuel Bartlett Diaz to Cara Quintero and others and to the Camarena case happened almost immediately after the case and certainly by 1990, 91, 92. So the idea that Charles Bowden or anyone else along those lines, you know, it, it, had that effect is is beyond absurd. I've been asked a lot, you know, what, in my heart of hearts, what do I think the role was? And let me back up to one thing. In, I got to make sure I say this carefully and don't violate any, um, any confidentiality, but in the early nineteen, early to mid nineteen nineties, there was a belief that there was an unsealed indictment in the Central District of California against Manuel Bartlett Diaz. There were various lawyers who worked on behalf of Manuel Bartlett Diaz, investigating that issue as well as the claims against. Manuel Bartlett Diaz. I happen to know some of these lawyers and my trust level for them is very high. Hey. While I am very comfortable saying that there is no evidence that I have seen for the reasons that we've talked about before, some of which I mentioned, to suggest that Manuel Bartlett Diaz was at any of these conspiracy meetings or that he was at Lope de Vega when Ancient Camarena was being interrogated. That doesn't mean that he didn't have a connection to or that he couldn't have had a connection to the cartel and perhaps was corrupt to one extent or another. I, I certainly don't have enough basis to say that he was, nor do I have sufficient basis to say that he wasn't. There, the infamous Mr. X in Narcos, Mexico, is based in whole or in part, I believe, on Manuel Bartlett Diaz, and I certainly don't believe that the portrayal of that figure is largely accurate. 
But to say that he had no connection, I certainly can't do at this point. (laughs) If the Mexican government was in, um, you know, some type of cooperative effort with Rafael Caro Quintero and others, Manuel Bartley Diaz almost certainly would have been aware of it. Perhaps we can leave it at that. We know... I want to talk for just a second about Bartlett Diaz again. One of the interesting things is Carl Quintero gets arrested, right? July 15th of last year. So one year and a day from today. If, if Carl Quintero ever starts talking, And maybe he has and we don't know it. And if there was a chance that he would point the figure at Manuel Bartlett Diaz in some way, shape, or form, isn't it interesting that AMLO brought Manuel Bartlett Diaz into his position within AMLO's government? I mean, certainly you you had to think right, that AMLO would have thought about the chance of Carlton Quintero being arrested. There were ongoing searches for him. So the idea that the idea that somehow, you know, he was never going to get caught probably wasn't on his mind. And yet Bartlett Diaz, you know, is continues to have a prominent role within the government. I wonder if, (laughs) to what extent do you think AMLO used Bartlett Diaz or, you know, um, brought him into the government as a signed to the United States. A sign that not everything was going to go smooth between the U.S. and Mexico with respect to economics, with respect to cartels, with respect to the the drug wars. I don't know. I, I just find it very interesting that Cara Quintero gets arrested, AMLO knows about it, and yet you still have this, you know, Bartlett Diaz sticking out there like a, a like a giant sore thumb, so to speak. All right, that was a little bit of a of a deviation there. So for forgive me for uh I don't know roaming off a little bit there. So that's what we wanted to talk about today. I, I think that um, that these two topics, Bartlett Diaz and corruption in Mexico, also go hand in hand. And maybe it's reflective of the idea of how ingrained it is that somebody with 
you know, the accusations surrounding him, like Bartlett Diaz has, could stay in such a position of power and authority for years and years, decades. I think one thing we see maybe more in the United States is, you know, one once you have that downfall, it's hard as heck to come back politically. Whether it's something simple, um, you know, a, a musky crying or something major, the 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 rebirth in politics maybe isn't quite the same in the United States. So I just I find the connection between the two interesting. If there's an interest in going back and exploring the exact details again of the allegations of Bartlett Diaz and the rebuttal to those, I'd be more than happy to do that. Which again brings me back to something I say every week. If you have questions, things you want me to talk about, things you want me to investigate, things you want me to talk, uh, to, talk to others about, more than excited about it. So please let me know. Um, planning a trip to Guadalajara in a couple of months. If there's things that you think would be interesting, people to talk to, things to see, things to talk about on the podcast, things to video to put on YouTube, again, please let me know. As I said, look for the newsletter. There's some pretty cool stuff in there this week. Next week, we're going to talk again about some of these unanswered questions. I got some unique perspectives on a few of them. And um, we'll continue to investigate, push the envelope on what we know, don't know, and what we might be able to prove with respect to the camera in a case, even all these years later. So that, my friends, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for today. Thank you again. Have a great week, and we'll talk next weekend.